0: There's several issues with the existing debt-based products. So the first is the socioeconomic impact of debt on on society as a whole. So stepchange.org have done some really wonderful research a few years ago where they looked at the impact of problem debt on the UK economy and they calculated that problem debt costs the UK economy 8 billion pounds a year. And this is the cost of people losing their homes due to getting into debt, people losing their jobs due to getting into debt, people's marriages breaking down due to debt, uh, you know, people's family environment breaking down due to debt. And all of that and, you know, the mental health issues and the strain that that causes on you know, the tax man effectively, all of that, they summed up and they came to the conclusion that problem debt costs the UK 8 billion pounds a year, which is astronomical. So there's the issue of debt in itself.
1: Hello and welcome, I'm Shiza Shah, your host of Vision Business and co-founder of UpEffect, a crowdfunding platform, resourcing organizations shaping a benevolent economy inspired by justice and ethics. If you're new to our work, over the last decade, our team has enjoyed spotlighting organizations at the forefront of advancing financial equity, conservation and economic empowerment. We're now deepening this work through our re-envision business podcast to dive deeper into what models are working and shaping the next economy. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems and with their help, we'll amplify models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In today's episode, we're joined by Raza Ullah from Primary Finance. We discuss the property sector, financing options available to homeowners, and their innovative cooperative models centered on improving home buying debt-free and stress-free. Raza Ullah is a qualified actuary by profession, with over 12 years actuarial experience. Raza has previously worked within consultancy at PricewaterhouseCoopers where he advised multinational blue chip organizations on technical reserving processes and capsule validation. He has worked in-house within the Lloyds of London marketplace as a technical capital modeling actuary and has further gained regulatory experience at the Bank of England's Prudential Regulatory Authority. Rosa qualified as an actuary very early in his career, having passed each of the actuarial examinations first time and consequently progressed rapidly to senior roles within the London financial marketplace. Before we dig into today's conversation, I want to take this opportunity to thank two special sponsors of today's episode. Islamic Markets is a leading platform that provides access to expert knowledge and financial opportunities for the global Islamic economy. To learn more about them, please visit islamicmarkets.com. Islamic Finance Advisory and Assurance Services is an international advisory firm specialised in Islamic finance, offering professional consultancy services to governments, multilateral organisations, Islamic financial institutions and more. Their work is driven by a passion to safeguard the Islamic financial industry and developing it into an inclusive, viable and efficient financial system. Learn more about their work at ifaas.com. Without further ado, let's hear from Raza on all things primary finance. Hi Raza, it's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for taking time out for today's conversation. Thank you for having me. You know, it's incredibly rare to find truly ethical and responsible businesses in the Islamic finance sector. I've been searching high and low for so long, and it's been such a delight coming across the work of primary finance and learning more about everything you do. I'm also very excited to learn more about the work that you do today. But my hope really is that we might be able to inspire more people to understand that there are other ways of building business um we don't have to you know compromise on our values and our principles when we engage with businesses or start businesses there is another way to do things so i'm hoping you know through your story others will feel inspired to do the same so i typically like to start these conversations right at the beginning so what were the collection of moments in your life that compelled you to start your primary finance journey
0: yeah sure so my story is one that I um, I like telling quite a lot because it reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's quite it's, it's quite a sort of spiritual journey I went through, um, and I'll just sort of explain that. So uh, I'm an actuary by background, uh, effectively a statistical modeler, if you like. I've worked for uh, financial institutions all my life, the likes of Coopers, Lords of London, Bank of England. So I've sort of grown up in that very competitive, very commercial City of London uh, environment and, uh, you know, uh, praise God, I've had very high-powered, well-paying roles and uh, I excelled through my career pretty rapidly and it was a career I was very, very happy in and doing what I loved and I was good at it. Um, Now, I uh, had a bit of a sort of life-changing experience back in 2016. uh, Effectively a shift in perspective when I went on Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca that uh, every Muslim strives to go on. Um, And this is sort of back in 2016 when I was working at the Bank of England at the time. So I went on Hajj, uh, I performed the rites of pilgrimage, and I basically sort of ended up on the plains of Arafa in the baking, baking hot sun, hands raised to the sky, making prayer effectively having a bit of a conversation uh, with Allah, with God, and just saying, yeah, Allah, you've given me everything, everything I could possibly hope for, health, wealth, intellect, uh, iman, my faith. You've given me this actual skill set that not that many people have. I'm never in need of anything because you've given me so much. Um, So what am I going to say to you when you ask me what I did with it all? Right. This was the conversation I basically started having with Allah. Mm-hmm. What am I going to say to you, Ya Allah, when you ask me what I did with the countless blessings you've given me? Mm-hmm. How am I going to stand in front of you on that day when you ask me this question? I'm too embarrassed to stand in front of you and say, I bought a nice car, I bought a nice house, I took my family on holidays, and that's all I did. Uh, I'm literally too embarrassed to stand in front of you and say that. So, what am I going to say to you? How am I going to stand in front of you? And this was basically a very spiritual, very. Um, enlightening moment for me where I basically just took a step back and thought about perspective and Mm -hmm. thought about the fact that there's more to life than just (laughs) earning money and being in a high-powered role and living for yourself, especially given the teachings of Islam, which are very dear to me, where, you know, Allah tells us in the Quran that he's created us to worship him, right? And so I basically took a step back and decided that I didn't have a good enough answer at that point in time. And I wanted to basically have a better answer and I decided that I needed to have a better answer. And so I basically at that point in time realized that I wanted to do something different in my life and I wanted to serve and I wanted to leave my mark on humanity and do something useful and beneficial for humanity. And so I came back from Hajj, I ended my role at the Bank of England, and I actually started thinking about what I can do with my skill set. And I first thought about charitable work, and then I thought, well, you know, there's lots of great charities doing great work. And then I actually rewound to a conversation that I'd had with a colleague of mine at the Bank of England, who was a young 20-something-year-old. He had just started, he was a graduate. And I'd been having a conversation with him earlier that, uh, sort of in, in the same year earlier, um, we used to sit next to each other, and I was saying to him, You know, we actuaries have a lot of money. My plan is to retire by the time I'm 40, have a portfolio of properties, and live off of the rental income. And this very young 20 something year old literally wagged the finger in my face and said, You know, Raza, what you're talking about is going to deepen this housing crisis that we already find ourselves in. Whereas with an actuarial skill set, you have a responsibility not an ability, a responsibility to do something about it, and so. As part of this process, I rewound to that conversation and thought, "Gosh, you know what, Elliot? This guy, Elliot, he's, he had such a good point." Sounds um, like
1: a brave man. Yeah, wow,
0: well, mm-hmm. and 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 this was how I sort of decided, okay, the housing market is where I can apply my skill sets, mm-hmm. and I started thinking about how mortgages work and how they're debt-based, and we'll get into some of the issues with with debt uh, in a minute, mm-hmm. and I started thinking about how. I can come up with a better solution, which is ethical and equitable and fair to both sides of the equation. Because the problem with the mortgage is that all of the risk base gets shoveled onto the customer whilst the bank takes the reward. It's not an equitable partnership. Um, Whereas I just thought to myself, there's got to be a fair way of doing that. And so I basically sat at my desk for a good six months and I started bashing out the skeleton for the product that we have today. And I then brought on board one of my co-founders, Sheikh Salman, to provide the um, Sharia uh, sign-off because it's very important to me that the product had to be Sharia compliant as well as ethical. Um, And uh, we then took it from there and uh, we grew the product. And we are where we are today.
1: That's a very inspiring story and journey that you've been on. Um, Yeah, I think um, faith can, create moments in our life um, that pushes us to think in different ways. Um, and it it's, it's a constant um, reminder in our lives of, you know, our purpose and why we do the work that we do. So it's really interesting how it's taken you to um, where you are today. We'll have many listening that, you know, might not necessarily be aware of what the current housing market looks like and what conventional and Islamic mortgages are, um, how they differ, and then where primary finance um, differentiates itself in terms of the products that it's bringing to market. So just to begin, would you be able to outline the key features of both conventional and Islamic mortgages, and what sets them apart?
0: Yeah, sure. So the way a conventional mortgage works is it's effectively a loan. So you go to the bank, you borrow a sum of money from the bank, you take that money and you go and you buy your house. Now, you are the owner of the house and you owe a debt back to the bank. So the bank has no interest really in the property that you've purchased. All they care about is the money that they've loaned to you, and you repaying that money over a set period of time with a set period of with a set amount of interest on top of that. So that's how a conventional bank mortgage works. It's a straightforward loan debt-based arrangement with interest. From an Islamic perspective, that's obviously not permissible because uh, riba, or loosely translated as interest, is not permissible from an Islamic perspective. So money on money, effectively, is not permitted in Islam. Now, the way an Islamic bank mortgage works is slightly different, so the structuring is not the same. Whereas with a conventional bank, you take the money and you buy the property yourself, with an Islamic bank mortgage, the way it works is the bank buys the property, and you now pay rent on the bank's share of the property. So uh, let's say it's a £100,000 property, maybe you'll put in £10,000 towards it and they'll put in the remaining £90,000. They'll take the ownership into their name, you'll pay rent on 90% of the property. Now, with the Islamic Bank mortgage, you must buy a share of their uh, equity every single month, as well as paying your rent every single month. So. Uh, The structuring is slightly different in that they own the property and you're paying rent on it. Um, But ultimately, it still uh, ends up enforcing a debt because you must buy their share over a set period of time. Um, And if you don't buy it within that set period of time, then you've uh, not fulfilled your terms of the agreement. Now, uh, again, from an Islamic perspective, there's a difference of opinion here, and it definitely splits the scholars on whether this is permissible or not. The two key contentious issues here are one around the fact that it's effectively a debt and you're paying money on a debt, and that strays very close to the definition of riba in Islam. And the other is risk sharing. So if it's a partnership, there should be a sharing of risk. So the acid test is what happens if the property is destroyed, for example, with a conventional bank loan. If the property is destroyed, the bank doesn't care. You owe them a debt. You must pay them back that debt, regardless of what happens to the property. With an Islamic bank mortgage, um, if the property is destroyed, the bank says that you must immediately purchase their share of the property off of them. So the bank will not take the loss, e- even if the property is fully destroyed. Like
1: almost the same.
0: And, and this is this is why there's uh, a lot of contention over the existing Islamic bank products.
1: Right. So, would you say that um, the risk being shared between current mortgage providers and customers is roughly the same um, between conventional mortgages and Islamic mortgages?
0: Yeah, pr- pretty pretty much identical, um, as far as I can tell. The Islamic bank will not accept a loss if the property is destroyed.
1: Got it. Okay. So, what warrants the need for alternatives to the mortgage options currently available in the market? Is it because of the um, limited risk sharing that's happening.
0: Yeah, so from uh, certainly for the Muslim niche, um, there's a, a you know there's there's a large portion of the Muslim population who are not comfortable with any of the existing products, whether they be Islamic bank products or conventional bank products. So for the Muslim niche, there's definitely that need. But then outside of the Muslim niche, in the in the more mainstream market, you know um, there's several issues with the existing. Uh, debt based products so the first is the socio economic impact of debt on on society as a whole so stepchange.org have done some really wonderful research a few years ago where they looked at the impact of problem debt on the uk economy and they calculated that problem debt costs the uk economy 8 billion pounds a year and this is the cost of people losing their homes due to getting into debt people losing their jobs due to getting into debt mm-hmm. people's marriages breaking down due to debt right. uh, you know people's family environment breaking down due to debt and all of that and you know the mental health issues and the strain that that causes on um, you know the the tax uh, you know the tax man effectively all of that they summed up and they came to the conclusion that problem debt costs the uk eight billion pounds a year, which is astronomical. So there's the issue of debt in itself. There's also the issue of affordability. So with debt-based products, if you take um, a conventional product, for example, the customer must pay interest and they must repay capital every single month. Mm -hmm. And let's say their repayment is a 1,000 pounds per month comprising interest plus capital, they must hit a 1,000 pounds every single month. And if in any month they can't pay that 1,000 pounds, okay, the bank's going to work with them. They're not going to kick them out of the house straight away. But maybe they'll give them a, you know, maybe in one month, the customer's car broke down. They had to pay the mechanic. They can't afford to pay a £1,000 in that month. They can only afford £800 in that month. The bank's going to give them a couple of months payment holiday in which uh, period they have to make good on that shortfall. And mm-hmm. the bank will charge some interest on that shortfall in the intervening period. And if the, if the customer doesn't make good on that shortfall in the sort of payment holiday period, then the bank's going to repossess the property and sell the property and the customer's going to lose their home and mm-hmm. it's going to be very very bad news for the customer so even if the customer has been you know paying on time every month for 10 years and now suddenly gets into difficulty they still risk losing their home if they miss a payment and can't make good on it and this is the problem with debt based pro- debt based products this is why debt based products are so heavily regulated as well because when you take on a lifelong debt a 30 year mortgage if that product is not the right product for you, or if it isn't managed properly by the bank, there's no doubt about it that it can ruin your life. And we see debt ruining lives um, when when debt goes wrong. When it's you know, when things are good, it's it's all rosy, but it's when things go wrong in debt based products that it, they can genuinely ruin lives, and that's where this eight billion pound cost comes from. And so in a wider mass market setting, again, I believe that there is a better way to do finance, then straightforward debt, a way which protects both sides of the equation. And I'll get into how our product works in just a minute, where it genuinely protects both sides of the equation, both the customer and us, in a very equitable, very fair relationship. And this is the change that I want to spark. This is my vision to show the world that there's a better way, a more equitable and ethical way of doing finance, which works for both sides of the equation and just makes a lot more sense than straightforward debt.
1: Why do you think debt has become such an integral part of how our financial systems work, given how harmful it is and given what the research reveals about the negative implications on the social economic status of individuals? In your view, why do you think we as a society have become so dependent on debt?
0: It's because debt is easy and debt is cheap. So, Banks effectively have a license to print money, right? The way to think about it is when you put £100 in your current account or your deposit account with your bank, the bank effectively lends somewhere between 95 and £98 of your money on somebody else's mortgage, right? So your bank balance still reads £100, but now somebody else has £98 as well. That £98 has been created out of thin air. This is called the mon- money multiplier effect. And this can only be achieved through the debt-based system because the bank can only lend that £98 to the, uh, to the mortgage customer if they can be pretty damn confident that they can get that money back because they owe that money to you. What most people don't realize is the money they put in a deposit account is a loan. You're loaning money to the bank, and that's why they pay you an interest rate on it, because they're just paying you interest on the loan that you've given them, right? But they now have a right to do with that money what they wish. If I loan you money, you can go and use that money to buy a car or to buy a dishwasher or whatever you want to do. So when we loan money to the bank through our deposit accounts, the bank can then use that money to lend. What the bank can't do is use that money, or not so easily use that money on equitable transactions because they'd have a mismatch in their liability. They've got a debt-based liability and an equity-based asset. So it wouldn't work. Whereas the way the whole banking system is set up, because we're lending money to the bank, they can then go and lend that money upwards through the money multiplier leverage effect. And uh, they can then effectively create massive scale through this effective printing of money. And it's just very, very simple and easy to do. And that's why debt is so prevalent, because it's just so easy for the banks to do it. Whereas equity funding is much harder to achieve, and it's more costly as well. Now, in the long term, the benefits of equitable partnership funding far outweigh, in my opinion, the benefits of debt-based funding. So debt-based funding, because it's so easy and cheap, you can scale massively and very, very quickly. Equitable funding takes longer But you can reach the same scale, it's just that it takes longer, but you have a lot more stability with equity-based funding. So the reason we see uh, market correction in the UK, every 30 years property prices come tumbling down and then they climb up again and they come tumbling down, is because of the volatility that comes with this debt-based leveraged, highly leveraged infrastructure that we've got. Whereas with an equitable structure, you don't get that.
1: So I understand that primary finance is looking to change that and protect customers on both sides of the equation. Can you please explain how your products differentiate themselves from conventional and traditional Islamic mortgages and how is it a viable alternative?
0: Yeah, so the easiest way to think of our product is to first understand the two extremes of home ownership. So on the one extreme, you've got the conventional mortgage where you own the property outright and you take all of the risk in the property, and the bank takes effectively none of the risk in the property. Okay? The opposite extreme is renting a property from a landlord. So in this extreme, you own none of the property, the landlord owns 100% of the property, and the landlord takes all of the risk in the property, right? So if anything were to happen to the property, if the property were destroyed, as tenant, you could wipe your hands clean and walk away, it wouldn't affect you, go and find another property, it's the landlord's headache, because he is the owner of the property, or she is the owner of the property, and they must suffer the loss that's occurred. So these are two extremes of home ownership. Our product sits in between those two, where we are part owner So we enter the property with you as partners, as genuine partners. The way to think of this is, she's, I imagine if you and I were to buy a car together, I haven't loaned you any money and you haven't loaned me any money. We have both jointly purchased the car. We are both partners in the car, right? So we don't owe each other any money. We are both joint owners in the car. Now, if anything happens to that car, as partners in the car, we both share the risk in the car. If the, if the car is stolen and let's say there's no insurance, we both take our share of loss, right? Because we're partners right. in the car. And that's exactly how our product works. So it's somewhere between the landlord model where the landlord takes all the risk mm-hmm. and the mortgage model where you take all the risk. It's somewhere in the middle where you take your share of risk and we take our share of risk, right? Mm-hmm. So we enter the property as partners. Let's say it's a 100,000 pound property. And you've put in £50,000 and we've put in £50,000 just to make the maths really simple, right? Mm -hmm. So we're 50-50 partners. Now, what we do is we say, well, because you are the only one living in the property, you have exclusive usage of the property. It's fair that you pay us rent on our share of the property, which is just like you paying rent to your landlord on 100% of the property. But because you own 50%, you're just paying rent on 50% of the property, right? So it's the exact same model. So you have a simple tenancy agreement with us and you rent our 50% of the property from us, and that is that is our contract in a nutshell. There's no there's no other bells and whistles to it. You're simply renting the share of the property that you don't own. Now, you can continue renting our share for as long as you like. We give you rather than a, a, a landlord agreement where you get a one-year assured short, short hold tenancy, and every year you must try and renew that or find a new place to live. We give you a lease, and that lease typically lasts. 20 years or so. And our policy is if you come to the end of your lease term and you want to renew the lease, our policies will renew the lease as well. So you can stay there as long as you like and you can just rent for as long as you like. And if you're happy owning your 50% share and just renting our 50% for the rest of your life, no problem at all. Very welcome to do that. But you may actually want to buy our share from us. And you're also very welcome to buy our share from us if you want to. The key here is there's no obligation. So as I mentioned, with an Islamic bank mortgage, you must buy the bank's share by a set period of time. Whereas with us, it's entirely flexible, entirely up to you. So if you want to buy our share from us, you're welcome to. And our policy is we'll always sell our share to you at whatever we purchased it. So even if the property's gone up and up and up in value, to make it affordable, we will just sell it to you at the price we purchased it. We make our money off the rent that you're paying us every month. That's that's our business model, the rental income, okay? Now, what we've done is, made this model extremely flexible and based it on tech. And we kind of see ourselves as the Uber of finance. So we have an app where our customers can log into their app. They can see all of the metrics to do with their agreement. And they can see uh, you know, how much of our share is outstanding. And from month to month, they can go into their app and they can say, okay, this month, I'm just going to pay rent. This month, I'm going to pay rent and purchase a share of equity. This month, I'm going to make a one-off very large sum. And they can do that from month to month without ever having to speak to us. And they can do what we call what if analysis in there. So they can say, right, what if I purchase 10,000 pounds of equity this month? What will that do to my rent? What will that do to my projections? And what will that uh, mean for me in terms of meeting my goals? How about instead of buying 10,000 pounds of equity all at once, if I was to just spread that over the next six months uh, or the next 10 months and just buy a thousand pounds of equity every month for the next 10 months, what would that mean? Okay, uh, method one is the one that hits the goals that I'm trying to achieve. That's the one I wanna go for, click and it's done. And they can commit it there and then. So through the power of our tech, we give our customers enormous flexibility and we empower them to make the most informed financial decisions. And to really put this into perspective, when you compare it to a conventional bank mortgage, let's say you've got a, I don't know, a Barclays mortgage and you're paying a thousand pounds per month and you decide, okay, I can actually afford to pay 1200 pounds per month. I'd like to change my agreement. That is a change to your agreement because you have a fixed agreement with Barclays and a fixed term and you're not allowed to vary from that term. If you want to now pay 1200 pounds a month, you have to actually apply for a brand new agreement. So that means you have to go through a brand new application process again, and you don't even have the information to know whether you're making a good decision or not until you've gone through that application process with them. So you have to spend an enormous amount of time and energy going through the application process again. It's going to cost you money as well, potentially. And that's what it that's what it takes every time you want to change your payments. Whereas with us, because the term, you may have a target term by which you want to fully purchase the property, but it's not an obligation. So by changing your term, changing your monthly equity purchase, you're not changing your agreement. So we empower you to be able to do that from month to month without even having to speak to us. And we give you all the information, all the charts and metrics and projections to do it from your bathtub at three o'clock in the morning. As long as you've got a smartphone or a device, you can look at it on. So we completely flip the game by empowering our customers and making sure that they have the most flexible, um, most ethical and most fair product where they are completely, solidly in control of their financial destiny. And this is something we're doing, which I don't believe has ever been done before. And I think this is going to really change the game.
1: It sounds like something radically different to what's currently available on the market. And that was my next question. What has the response been from traditional customers that are accustomed to um, debt-based arrangements and going down the traditional mortgage route? Because this is something completely new. So I imagine there's a large educational piece to the work that you're doing as well
0: yeah so at the moment our focus has been mainly on the muslim market who have been waiting for a truly equitable product and so we've got a huge demand from the muslim market but what i can say with certainty is whenever we explain our product to the mass market to the non-muslim market you know we see jaws drop and we see people thinking You know, I could benefit from this. My children could benefit from this. Why has no one ever offered this to us before? And this is a wonderful response. We haven't started marketing much yet we're still you know we're still in the startup phase and we've got a huge waiting list even from the muslim market so we haven't really gone out to market in the mainstream just yet but there is clear demand for these types of products now we're seeing more and more demand for what you call part owned part buy products uh, sorry part owned part rent products for example shared ownership products which you get from local authorities huge demand increasing for those and in particular because with a conventional bank mortgage because you're so confined to what you have to pay every single month, affordability becomes quite tricky with conventional bank mortgages, and people are very limited in what they can actually get. Whereas the beauty of a a product like this, where there is no debt, is that you can actually afford a lot more than what you can with a conventional mortgage. And so it actually opens up the market massively to the financially disenfranchised. So uh, there is clear demand for these types of products. I can't say... Um, you know, I I can't say we've got a huge amount of data within the mainstream for our product yet, only because we haven't really started marketing it in the mainstream just yet.
1: Right. Um, And I'm not surprised to hear that there is so much demand. Um, It's clearly an absolutely amazing solution that so many people have been waiting for. One question that keeps coming up for me is how do you sustain the operations of a business like this? Because I imagine there is a huge cost to, you know, purchasing the difference in equity and selling these properties at cost price. So mm. how does um, primary finance sustain its financial operations?
0: So what we've done is we've effectively looked at the banking model, looked at how it works. And the banking model works because it's been operating for hundreds of years, right? We've taken that model and we've replicated it, but in an ethical framework. So as I mentioned, the way the way a bank operates is people put money in there. Deposit accounts, the bank uses that money to lend on mortgages, right? And and that's quite a sustainable model. So what we do is we offer investment savings accounts uh, to to people, right? To anybody who wants them. And so people put money into investment savings accounts with us. Now that money is effectively being used to fund those property purchases, and those customers are then getting a profit share. On the rental income that's coming back from those property purchases so it's a direct investment effectively into our portfolio of properties and that's the liquidity that we raise to finance these properties and those customers then get a profit share on the rental income that we're making and we take a share of that rental income as well and that's how we sustain our own business operations so rather than using um you know our own share capital we actually use the money that we raise through these investment savings accounts and these are retail investment savings accounts and you know we've had huge huge demand for these as well and the demand is growing and the beauty of it is that because uh many of the people opening these savings accounts with us want to ultimately buy a home with us um it becomes a virtuous cycle where everybody's helping everybody else so um those people putting money into their savings accounts they're helping people buy their homes, but they are then prioritized in our waiting list to buy a home with us as well. They're getting a very ethical tax-free return whilst they're waiting for their turn to come up. Uh, and then when their turn does come up, that money which they've put into their investment savings account with us, that becomes their deposit for actually buying a home with us. So it all comes round in a virtuous, beautiful cycle where everybody's supporting everybody else and everybody's benefiting as well. <laughs>
1: So just to clarify, so someone that invests, um, so joins as an investor, um, would they be able to convert their investment into equity f- um, of a future so. fund they purchase? Yeah, that's,
0: that's exactly right. So okay. that's exactly how our model works. The money in their investment savings account is actually their credit in the property or their partnership share in the property. So they don't have to take it back out. They don't have to convert it. It automatically becomes their partnership share in their property. So it's it's been designed specifically to work in that way.
1: Wow. So basically a continuous loop where you have investors, customers and primary finance as owners, co-owners of this initiative.
0: That's exactly right. So what we're doing is we're basically creating a massive tribal nation of Uh, people who are all working together to support each other. And this is, again, you know, from the prophetic tradition, you know, at the time of Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, when uh, parties wanted to go on an expedition and they had to travel for months on camel, you know, the whole village would come together and put all their funds together, and that money would be used to support everyone in the village on the travel and and pay for any disasters that occur and stuff like that, right? And that's the exact concept that we've taken. So we're basically creating this sort of tribal pot But rather than it just being confined to a village, it's global. And, you know, well, right now it's constrained to the UK, but eventually it will become global as well. And the idea is that we're basically creating a, um, you know, a a global tribe where everybody is working to support everyone. And this is what ethical finance is about. It's about everybody being in it together rather than one party benefiting and the other party losing, which is a zero-sum game, right? That's how a conventional bank mortgage quite often ends up working when things go wrong. Whereas here... Everybody is in it together. Everybody wins together and everybody loses together if there are losses. And that's what ethical finance is about.
1: So it sounds pretty much like a cooperative for intents and purposes, but you know, some people that might be listening, they would be thinking, okay, um, I've, you know, joined this mission of, you know, contributing to this collective pot and we're all in this together to, you know, get ourselves in the property market, but also help other people. What happens In instances where, you know, God forbid, primary finance runs into financial trouble um, or you decide to exit primary finance, what happens to the properties that are co-owned by your customers and investors? Yeah,
0: really, Really good question. And again, this is something we've thought about during the structuring. So the money that the customers are putting in, that money is ring fenced away from the operations of primary finance. That money is exposed only to those properties that are purchased. So the way it works is it's a separate legal entity and primary finance manages that entity, but that entity is effectively owned by all of our investors, right? All of our retail savings account holders. And so if anything were happen to primary finance, you can think of it as that entity, um, you can think of it as primary finance being an accountant, right? Imagine if you own a company and you have an accountant running that company for you. If your accountant gets into financial difficulty or disappears, that doesn't have any impact on the company that you own. Those assets belong to you. So you can find another accountant to come and manage your company for you, and it shouldn't really have too much impact on you. So we've ring-fenced those funds very successfully away from the wider risks of primary finance, so that even if anything were to happen to us, that wouldn't cause our investors, our savings account holders, to make a loss. The risk that our savings account holders are exposed to is property risk, right? It's not... A bank deposit—it's an investment. That's something to be very clear about. And as with any investment, there's an element of risk. But the risk is that of property investment. Now, property investment—there's a term safe as houses, right? Because property is bricks and mortar. It's generally seen as a low-risk investment. That doesn't mean there's no risk. But um, when we buy a property, you know, when we're buying a home, we almost don't even think about risk because you know we're literally buying a bricks and mortar building. The risk you take when you buy a property, of course, is if, uh, God forbid, that hurricane were blown into the sea by a hurricane, and the insurance didn't pay up for whatever reason, now you've lost the money that you've put into the property. Now, we don't too often hear of properties being destroyed. We don't too often hear of insurance companies failing either. And the risk of both of those happening is low, but it can happen, right? But the, the point I like to make is if you're comfortable buying a property, Let's say you've got 100,000 pounds in savings and you use that to buy a property up north in Middlesbrough somewhere. You've bought a property for 100,000 pounds. If that property is wiped out, you've lost your 100,000 pound investment, right? That's fair. Now, what we do is if you put that same 100,000 pounds into our savings account with us, we spread that money over our entire portfolio of properties. So now, even if that worst case scenario were to happen to one of our properties, if it was blown into the sea and the insurance on it failed at the same time for whatever reason, whereas if it's if all your money in one property, if that property is destroyed, you lose all your money, right? Because our money gets spread across all our entire portfolio of properties, if that were to happen in the worst case scenario, if that property that's destroyed is worth 1% of the portfolio, as an example, yes, you would still make a loss in that scenario, but rather than losing all your money, you would only make a 1% loss. And actually we have buffers in place to even prevent that Happening to an extent, um, so we, we try and even avoid even in that worst case scenario, our investors suffering a loss. But the key here is a very Islamic principle, which is in in Arabic is al kharaju bi daman the reward with with risk comes reward right. So the reason uh, you know interest on a loan is prohibited in Islam is because you're not taking any risk really. You should should be taking risk in order to achieve a reward. So with an investment, you're taking risk in the underlying properties and therefore you are eligible for a reward in an Islamic perspective, right? So for us to be able to give a return to our investors, our investors have to accept that there's an element of property risk. And as long as they are comfortable with that property risk, um, which, as I say, is the same as if you're buying your own property, but spread over our entire portfolio of properties, as long as they're comfortable with that, then they can open an investment savings account with us and they can benefit from the reward that they get on that account.
1: Okay. What happens if a customer is unable to continue paying rent, especially in today's um, cost of living crisis, where you know you might be hearing all kinds of things from customers due to difficult economic times that we're living through?
0: So I'm really glad you asked that question because this is again an area where I think our product really excels, right? So imagine going back to the conventional mortgage where you've got to pay a thousand pounds per month, interest plus capital every single month. You must pay your interest plus capital every single month. Okay, now imagine with our product, maybe your target payment is a thousand pounds per month, which is your rent plus your target level of equity purchase every month, okay? If you can't afford to pay your thousand pounds, that's fine because you don't have to purchase equity in any month at all. So in that month, let's say you can't afford to pay the 1,000 pounds, you could choose to just pay your rent, right? So maybe your rent is only 600 pounds. So in that situation, you've got breathing room, or you could pay 800 pounds, which is your rent plus a smaller amount of equity purchase. So you've got breathing room. Whereas with a conventional bank, you know maybe you take a two-year fixed period. In that fixed period, if you want to um, overpay on your capital, They'll charge you a fine for it, right? You, you'll have an early repayment fee for that. With us, there's no such thing. You can buy as much equity or as little equity as you like whenever you like through your app again, as I say. There's no early repayment fees. We don't believe in early repayment fees because it's, there's no obligation on you to purchase our equity. It's just you offering to purchase it and our policies will always sell it to you. If you want to buy a very large sum of equity, we might just require a notice period, but that's about it, right? So, Now you've got the breathing room if times are difficult. Let's say you've had to pay £200 to your mechanic this month, and you can only pay £800, or you can only pay £600, which is just your rent in this purely made-up example. So that gives you the breathing room. Now, let's say you can't even afford to pay your rent, right? Uh, God forbid you've lost your job, you've got no income, and now you can't afford to pay your rent. This is, again, something very unique to our product. It's what we call our equity buffer. So let's say we're 50-50 owners, or, or, or let's say more realistically, you've got 10% equity in the property and we've got 90%, right? You've got a 10% equity buffer. Now, what that means is in months where you can't afford to pay your rent, because you have tangible shares, you actually get share certificates every time you purchase equity, right? Because you've got tangible equity in the property, you can just sell some of your equity back to us, right? So you can actually pay us out of your equity buffer. So instead of giving us £600 of cash in that month, you can give us £600 of equity in that month instead. And to put this into perspective, Shiza, as I mentioned with a, with a conventional bank, you know, maybe you'll get two months payment holiday to make good on any shortfall. With us, you've got the breathing room, but you've now got your equity buffer. That equity buffer for an average customer who has, let's say, 10% buffer, if they lost their job on day one, without ever having made a payment, that 10% buffer would last them on average two to four years. So this is an unprecedented level of security, that's two to four years to get back on their feet, find another job and start making payments again. So that means in the worst case scenario, if someone loses their job, they don't have to immediately think, oh God, how am I going to pay my mortgage? They can focus on what's important. They know they've got that buffer there for the worst case scenario. They know they've got security in their home. They're not going to lose their home as long as they've got that buffer there. And so they can now focus on getting their life back together and doing what's important to them rather than focusing on how they're going to appease their bank. And again, this is just you know, how we make our finance ethical and fair rather than the bank coming along and kicking the person when they're already down on their knees going through the hardest time in their life. We come and we extend the olive branch and we say, look, don't worry about it. Focus on getting your life back together. And this makes me just feel like our product just is so different to anything out there at the moment. Uh, And again, you know, this is the worst case scenario if they lose lose their job on day one. More realistically, if we've underwritten them properly, it's very unlikely that they're never going to make a payment from day one. It's very unlikely. More realistically, it might be, you know, 10 years down the line, maybe they've developed chronic back pain, they can't work anymore, whatever. But now rather than 10% buffer, maybe they have 20, 30, 40% buffer, and that might see them through the rest of their life. Right, And, you know, they might be comfortable just now staying in their property with security, uh, paying their rent through their buffer, or they might, you know, eventually at some point want their next of kin to take over the agreement. The point is there's a lot more options available with our product than you get with a conventional banking product. And in the worst, worst case scenario, let's say they can't pay their rent and they don't want to utilize their equity buffer. That's fine. There's no obligation, right? They, they don't have to utilize their equity buffer. In the worst case scenario, again, before repossessing and kicking them out, there's another option available where we can say, okay, you know, you, you clearly can't afford to pay your rent. Maybe if it's an option, and it won't always be, but maybe if it's an option, you can move out and live with friends and family for a while. We can rent the property out to a third party. Now you're getting an income because we're giving you your share of rental income, because you're a part owner in the property. So now you're getting a share of income. Maybe you can't live in the property for a while, but you're getting a share of income. And that in itself might help you get back on your feet. Once you're back on your feet, you move back in the property again, and you continue living in your home. So we've factored in so many options for our customers, even in those worst case scenarios, that really avoid having to go to the worst extreme of kicking them Out of their house and and making them homeless, Um, and this is something which I'm just incredibly proud about with our product.
1: I'm I'm truly floored by how many things you've thought about in terms of the protective measures that are needed to ensure customers are taken care of um, in all possible scenarios. That is so incredibly rare to see in business models. So, thank you for you know what you're doing with primary finance. I'm I'm curious to hear. You know, what measures as a business you've put in place to ensure that, you know, if you were to exit um, primary finance or you were to bring in new investors, those kinds of values and principles still, you know, stay at the core of the work that happens at primary finance 10 years, 20 years from now.
0: Yeah. So first of all, you know, we've got a wonderful management team. We've been growing our board. Our board is not just founders founder led anymore. We've got uh, we've got uh, you know we've got uh non-exec director, we've got other directors who are non-founders, and so uh, we've got that extra protection in there which limits the key man risk, right? Um, I should, I should also point out that, you know, primary finance for me is a passion. And for me, it's not about the exit or about making millions of pounds or anything like that. As I say, you know, I was very, very blessed in my previous career where there were times in my career I was earning more money than I knew what to do with. So for me, this isn't about money. Um, and to, to put that into perspective again, when I set up primary finance and gave up my job, I didn't take an income from primary finance for, for the first five years. Right, I did it for free for the first five years because it wasn't about money for me. For me, this was about fulfilling a spiritual need and a spiritual responsibility, as far as I see it. And and nothing has changed there. But we've got you know the wider board who can uh, who can carry on running the business even if anything were to happen to me or one of the other co-founders in the business. Um, and the contracts that we have with our customers are drafted to give them those contractual protections as well. So for example, let's say I suddenly had a change of heart and decided, okay, I want to sell all of these properties now. We wouldn't be able to even if we wanted to, not without the customer's consent, right? So the way we've drafted those contracts is with these principles in mind so that the Customer is contractually protected. It's not just our word. It's not just them relying on our goodwill. That is their protection. It's enshrined in the contracts that we've actually drafted for them. You know, we're a very diverse team. You know, um, praise God, we're I think we're a team of 25 and we're approaching 30 because we're still hiring. And we're a very diverse team. We've got people from all different backgrounds. But one thing that's incredibly important to me is that whoever works for us buys into our vision, right? And I'm not talking about necessarily the Islamic Sharia perspective, I'm talking about the ethical vision, right, the benefit we're trying to bring about, and the change that we're trying to spark. And that's one thing I really look out for when hiring people, particularly my senior uh, team. I really want them to believe in what we're doing. I don't want my team to just treat this as a nine to five. I want them to genuinely believe in what we're doing. And that's, again, to ensure that this legacy carries on down the line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think it's important that a team buys into a vision before they, you know, come on board to um, build um, something um, in in partnership with one another. I'm curious to hear, because the way I see it, primary finance is a rare gem in the Islamic economy. Um, What will it take to motivate more people to start more ethical and conscious and responsible enterprises in this space? um especially you know keeping in mind the the true principles of islamic economics which i think a lot of enterprises have steered away from
0: i think um as primary finance i think we are you know I, I i feel we are one of the leaders in this space in terms of being really true to the ethics and principles um and i think we have a big responsibility to set the example because my my vision isn't just to dominate as primary finance my vision is to spark the change and I've said that a few times I want people to see this model and see that this model works and that it's a feasible long-term viable model and I genuinely believe it is and all the figures and stats and data to date suggest that it is and I want people to learn from our experience and see for themselves that this is a viable model you can be ethical and you can be very successful and I genuinely believe in my heart that primary finance will be very successful, inshallah. But I don't believe I will be successful unless I encourage others to do the same. Primary finance can become a unicorn. And as far as I care, if we are the only ones doing this in five to 10 years time, I have failed miserably. So it's I take it as a very serious responsibility upon my own self to encourage others to enter this market and really take the ethical flag and run with it because that is my mission. That's why I'm doing this.
1: I love that. I don't know if you've heard of zebras, which is the alternative to unicorns. Um, But yeah, the way I imagine is uh, primary finance actually, you know, leading the way and inspiring a new generation of enterprises within this space. So, Rosa, thank you so much for all the incredible work you you and your team has been doing um, to change the narrative on how responsible enterprise should be done and what it means to actually adopt ethical financial practices. Um, And I'm really excited to see what lies ahead of your journey. Just a final question, where can those listening learn more or sign up as a primary finance customer or investor?
0: Yeah, so um, our website is the best source of information, primary-finance.com. We've got a very, very friendly team. You can email us info at primary-finance.com. You can contact us through the website. And we've got uh, really good YouTube videos and, uh, you know, plenty of stuff on social media as well. So lots of different avenues to find out more about us. Um, I'm very approachable myself. People send me sort of LinkedIn invites all the time. And I'm happy to just sort of uh, communicate uh, with anyone that wants to talk. Really, (laughs) But uh, I think as a team, we're very, very... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think as a team, we're very, very friendly and approachable. And, you know, any any anyone who wants to find out more, we're more than more than happy to uh, provide the information. We?
1: Wonderful. We'll include the links in the show notes as well um, so that people can sign up as a customer or investor. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much, Reza, for joining us and helping us re-envision business today.
0: Thank you so much, Sheeda. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to Rohan Singhal for editing this episode. To ensure you are notified of future conversations on impactful strategies and organizational practices, please subscribe or follow re envision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you enjoyed our episode, Please leave us a review and share the episode with your community so that others can learn about the incredible work that so many people are stewarding to build a better future for us all. You can connect with us and learn more about our work at www.theupeffect.com. Thanks again for listening.